there and welcome to you totally made that up i'm nash and i am tiff and tiff i'm gonna randomly keep doing this because i talk so much you want to have a run at the intro i can do that Ooh, all right go for it all right we are a history podcast and we tell stories that are crazy and weird they have supernatural and paranormal elements usually and we like them to be true even if they're only true to the people who live them So that means that we like facts and we like names and dates instead of the lore says and the legend goes and my cousins, sisters, uncles, grandpa said this. (laughs) So yeah, so we want to know about real things that happened in history, but they're, they're a little off. They're a little left to center, you know, the kind of stories that sound like you totally made them up. And that's why we named it what we did. So, (laughs) aren't we clever? Well, to start off, we got to knock some business out because as usual, you guys are phenomenal. You always, you just never fail to give us feedback and write in about little, more little factoids or little personal anecdotes. And so Chris from England, who never fails, wrote us. Never, 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 never. Wrote us regarding the last full episode, which was about mummies and said, Want to know something really creepy about cats in the walls? Yeah. (laughs) Of course we do. My granddad and three of my uncles worked in the building trade. Between them, they renovated countless old houses in the UK over around a 50-year period. And they found a ton of cats in the walls and under floorboards, although mostly in the floor. Given the condition of the underside of the floorboards and such, they believe that the vast majority of these cats were very much alive when they were sealed in. Oh, I take that to mean claw marks is what I'm reading into that. Yeah, that's terrible. That's That's terrible. terrible. I don't think that was part of the uh, superstition there with the cats, was it? No, not 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 by my reading. Mm -mm. (laughs) I think the idea was that they should be dead so that they could help communicate with the spirits. Right. Yeah, there was a miscommunication there. Definitely, definitely. Unless, like you said, they were crawling into walls, you know, to get away from hoarding situations. That would have been a lot of hoarding. Oh, man. You know, and then we had mentioned workhouses as part of the story. And she also said the upper classes believed that poverty was the result of a moral failing and laziness. So workhouses were to act as the deterrent to the majority of the population. The only upside was that there tended to be some form of medical care. So I think our assumption that Pettigrew's dad was somehow involved that way was probably at least kind of close to the truth. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. If he wasn't one of the Richie Riches kind of in charge of it running the joint, I think that makes more sense that he was the doctor for it. Mm -hmm. So next up, another listener wrote to us regarding our recent spooky snack and said, Turkeys are no joke. I saw a high school baseball game canceled due to a turkey who refused to leave the field and kept trying to attack the athletes. It was the biggest turkey I've ever seen. Maybe not as big as the gobble snatch squatch, but still. Excellent job again, ladies. And Stu was an excellent guest. Stu was indeed. We were happy to have her on and we may do more guests again in the future. That was fun. It was. Yeah. She did a great job. And um, oh, speaking of Stu. I did make a note of this. She had asked at one point when we mentioned a gang of turkeys, well, what is a group of turkeys called? So I looked that up. And according to the internet, if they are wild, they're a flock. But if they're domesticated, they're called a rafter, which I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So if you look in Merriam-Webster, it says that a rafter is any of the parallel beams that support a roof and also a person who travels by raft and also a person who maneuvers logs into position and binds them into rafts. And that is all I've got. <laughs> rafter of turkeys. I got nothing. So <laughs> rafter of turkeys. Wow. Okay. If any intrepid listener wants to go down that road and try to figure out where the hell 
you know, with the etymology of that, knock yourself out. We welcome your input. But um, do we do we have anything else to tell the listeners before we get started that you can think of? Yes, actually, we are starting to get into exchanging promos with some fellow podcasts that are. Oh, kind yeah. Of, yeah. And a lot of them are kind of in our wheelhouse, kind of similar themes, similar storytelling. So we give them our stamp of approval because we think that they're doing good work. So when we do that, you're going to hear them at the end of our episodes. And we hope that you check them out and give them a little nod. Tell them that we sent you over there. Yep, yep, yep. So you'll hear one at the end of this episode. And speaking of, here is our theme for this, your Thanksgiving episode. And technically it's episodes because this is going to be a two-parter. So surprise, we just, we found so much great stuff. I just, we can't wait to tell you guys. Given that I had dental surgery earlier this year, and given that Tiff about wrenched her shoulder out of the socket several weeks ago, what we are most thankful for presently is modern medicine. And that sent us down a road of old-timey cures. And we learned a lot of things that surprised us, in particular, that two of the world's most favorite products started out as cures that were rooted in spiritual and or religious beliefs. So they fit into our jam because of that, and also because the situations were, across the board, just plain weird. I think that's (laughs) suffice to say. They were just weird. Yes. Weird. (laughs) Weird. Now, here's the disclaimer. Religion touches on some of the stories that we tell here on the podcast. It's going to do that in these, but I don't ever want it to seem like we're shitting on religion. We just call out stupidity and ridiculousness. And sometimes on the giant Venn diagram of life, those two will overlap. So just putting that out there. Don't nobody get your fee-fees hurt. We're not talking about you specifically and your religion. Just a blanket statement there. One other disclaimer for these episodes in particular, and I'll probably reiterate this on part two as well. While we were researching, we found out that both of these stories were covered by Drunk History, and we are not copying them. I swear we're not. This was a complete fluke, but we are going to link you to those videos and show notes because they are absolutely hilarious and must be seen. So right there out of the gate, there's some of your supplemental fun stuff that you're going to see in show notes. Drunk History is always a good time. I take you to the United States, the end of the 19th century, a.k.a. your favorite time and mine the 1800s. And here's what was going down. Between the Civil War and the turn of the 20th century, this time is commonly referred to as the Gilded Age. And it's because America got really prosperous because of the growth in technology and industry. So factories, basically. And because there were things like meat processing plants, access to such was easier for people who weren't on the farm. And they started eating all these rich foods, particularly for breakfast. Says culinary historian Sarah Wasberg Johnson regarding many people in America growing wealthier and breakfast getting bigger, quote, there's a trend that started with the European aristocracy to have this giant breakfast buffet with cold smoked tongue, ham, sausage and egg dishes and things like that. So everybody had gotten in the habit of having these types of breakfasts and health ramifications were starting to come from it, specifically, quote, digestive ailments likely linked to a typical diet high in refined carbohydrates, sugar, and meat. A lot of my info for what's coming up is from an A&E documentary, by the way, and they put it really succinctly, saying, quote, money in the pocket meant food in the belly, a lot of it. And on top of that, they point out that people, the wealthier at least, were washing it all down with beer and bourbon and then chasing the whole shebang with cigars. At the same time, as we edged closer to the turn of the century, health started coming more into focus. And it had to do with intellectual movements and this proliferation of spiritual philosophies and new medical practices throughout the U.S. and Europe. Quote, a number of alternative healthcare methods that focus on self-healing, holistic approaches, and preventative care, including homeopathy, osteopathy, chiropractic, and naturopathy, were founded during the era and other new philosophies were more spiritually oriented, such as the mind cure movements, and were instrumental in propagating the modern idea that a primary source of physical health is one's mental and spiritual state of being. So, all right, I hope that sets the stage of the general mindset in that area of thought, because per my usual, I tell you all that in order to ask you to tuck it away for later use. So let us now journey specifically to Michigan, where lived a farmer by the name of John Preston Kellogg, who was married to a woman named Ann Stanley. 
And one of his hobbies was apparently impregnating Anne as often as possible because they had 11 children. Oh, Anne. And wait, Anne was his second wife. He already had six children from the first marriage. No. John Preston liked to bone. (laughs) Now, he and Anne were devout Christians, and they raised the children as such, but they kind of jumped around being attached to the Baptist denomination, the Congregationalist Church, and then ultimately the Seventh-day Adventists. No spiritualism? How disappointing. No spiritualism. No, no, no. They ended up moving to Battle Creek, Michigan, and he establishes what will eventually become a really successful brewing factory. They also wanted to move there to be closer to a bigger congregation of Seventh-day folks, specifically one headed by James and Ellen White. I shall now ever so briefly tell you about them and their beliefs. They were, and I quote, rapidly gaining fame through the visions Ellen White experienced. Here we go. Now, in some of her visions, God told her that the body should be purified by, quote, not drinking tea, coffee, or alcohol, and not eating the flesh of animals, which... Okay. I am not pure. <laughs> and, but you know, okay, as far as visions go, I'm not, I'm not terribly disturbed. And, and there's more, but this story isn't about her, so I'm not going to go down that road. We might save her for another episode because she's, she's an interesting bird. She was actually in 2014 named by the Smithsonian as one of the 100 most significant Americans of all time. So, oh. yeah. But what you need to know for our purposes is that a certain kid of Kellogg's really caught her and her husband's attention, and they took him on as kind of a student and protege. That kid was John Harvey, number five of the Stanley Kellogg Union's sons, and he was born February 26, 1852. And he was a sickly kid. He had TB at one point, and he had an aversion to the medical field because of all he went through. He actually told his mom that he wanted to be, quote, anything but a doctor. But he was a super curious kid. He read a lot, all that jazz, even though he had dropped out of school at age 11. At that point, he'd only had three years of formal education because of the whole TB thing. So he goes at that point to work at his dad's broom factory sorting brooms. But he hated it, understandably, because that sounds boring as fuck. That's the worst. I mean, bad. So when he's about 12, that's when he gets noticed by the whites, just how hardworking and into learning that he was. And Ellen says that she has a vision that John Harvey would, quote, one day fill a powerful place in God's service. So they start him off with a job printing these health reform pamphlets that they would distribute. And he really got into the whole wellness concept we talked about. And at 14 years old, he decides to become a vegetarian. Also that year, and we're in 1866 now, the church opens a convalescent home called the Western Health Reform Institute there in Battle Creek and taps John Harvey to be a healer again. He is 14 years old. I mean, a 14-year-old comes at me with medical advice, regardless of time period, and you're going to have to scrape me off the floor. I'm going to be laughing so hard. I just, it's (laughs) it's not happening. But, you know, that's not precisely what happened. He actually ended up getting some formal education. I mean, I get the impression at this point he was just kind of apprenticing, for lack of a better word. So when he's 20, they sent him off to the East Coast to the Water Cure Institute in New Jersey not quite starting off in actual medicine. It's training for water therapy, which is basically a lot of baths and also steam baths where they would put you in this box with only your head sticking out and spritz away because, you know, cleanliness next to godliness and all that stuff. But he thought that some of the teachings were a little extreme. One of the people in the A&E documentary mentions that um, some heavy, heavy air quotes here, practitioners recommended something like 40 to 50 glasses of water a day. Oh, Don't do that. No. That's really bad. And John Harvey thought that they could use some moderation. Moderation, (laughs) y'all. Yeah. And and by the way, (laughs) tuck that little tidbit away too. King of moderation over here. Uh Uh-huh. By 1874, he'd reconsidered his childhood thoughts and decided he should become a doctor. And the Whites front him some cash. And he goes to both University Medical School in Ann Arbor and Bellevue Medical School in New York. And in two years, he's a legit doctor. He dropped out of school at 11 and then ended up going to medical school anyway? Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. So I'm going to call that a combo of two things. Highly intelligent. Also, uh, medical school is not that hard back then. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. So, I mean, don't misunderstand me. It it wasn't like a cakewalk, but it wasn't hard back then. You basically just apprenticed and learned on the fly. I mean, you, you did some book learning, (laughs) as members of my Southern family might call it. But 
for the most part, it was, you were on the floor, you know, in the hospital wards. So you're not. Yeah, it makes, all right. I there's get no it. MCATs. And I mean, yeah. if you, but anyway, my point is it wasn't the academic type thing like it is today. Meanwhile, back in Battle Creek, the church's convalescent home was not exactly in the black. It was actively failing. So the whites were all, hey, dude, we paid for you to become a doctor. Now it's time for you to come back and fix our mess. I'm, I'm sure it was less blunt than that. But I have to think that they asked, you know, very pointedly. First thing he does is expand it and rename it to Battle Creek Sanitarium. And this building is absolutely gorgeous. And it's huge. Like, as we go along in the story, he adds on to it over the years. but just it's it's impressive what it was initially it's pretty impressive and i'll put pictures of it in show notes anyway he hires a large medically trained staff and he pumps the brakes on the water therapy to a degree and introduces established medical practices and also starts inventing new things that we'll get to here in a second but remember this was a church established joint so he couldn't stop the seventh day adventist stuff and he couldn't take their influence out of it so another thing he did was talk to Ellen White when she'd be having her vision trances and, quote, implant his ideas for diet therapy in her mind. And as she recovered to her normal condition, they came out as pronouncements from on high and became part of the church doctrine. <laughs> shady. <laughs> Shrewd, but shady. All right. At least he was aware of what was really going on with whatever her visions were. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's he's he's very interesting. You bring up a good point. It's like he he buys into a lot of it, but only so much as it coordinates with what he was kind of thinking anyway. And the rest of it, it's it's like, yeah, he totally realizes it's woo. Yeah. But then he is okay, we'll get to it. I'm I'm not gonna spoil. Okay. Calling back to what we said before about how people were eating at the time, this major shift in diets, there were understandably lots of belly issues. And a popular subset of patent medicines had to do with upset digestive tracts. So tonics and cures, quote unquote, for indigestion, constipation, diarrhea, all that good stuff was going gangbusters. But John Harvey was like, you dumb shits, are you not seeing the correlation between what you're putting into yourselves and how gross you feel? So he was all, come on down to the sand, <laughs> which, which was their nickname for the sanitarium. How witty. And we'll get you fixed up. We're like the spa, but also a medical clinic. So you're going to de-stress and get treatment all at once. Win-win. Give us your money. Upon arrival, guests were, quote, weighed, interviewed at length, x-rayed, and probed from every angle. Then a tailored program of baths, massages, exercise, and diet was made for each person. Again, there's nothing terribly crazy pants about any of this so far. Wait, Yeah. It all sounds actually kind of nice. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Quote, the underweight would have sandbags placed on them. Dr. Kellogg was sure that gravity would do the rest. <laughs> what? Huh? We were so close to, <laughs> we were so close. Tiff, we were right there. We were right there. <laughs> um, I mean, just what a is, breath away. What is gravity doing? What exactly is happening here? No, he's, is it like he's, osmosis? Are they getting the sand? No. <laughs> No, it's like he saw through the woo, but he was like, fine, fine, but I'm going to make this work to do some legit health care. And then, God damn it, like we were so close. Huh. But hey, hey, y'all, just, just buckle up because we're about to go on a ride. And I want you to imagine every bit of this coming from a, while charming and knowledgeable, this is coming from a little like five foot five inch tall man with what I admit is an impressive mustache dressed in white down to his shoes and quote, often with a white cockatoo perched upon his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pirate. Okay, I'm ready. Arg. There were cages to stand in. In one photo I saw, a dude was fully clothed in a suit. And that cage would, quote, administer static electricity, which is supposed to relax you. But then you'd also see men in these diaper things, which were decently fluffy. And they looked like someone had wound a bed sheet around their junk like a turban. And that's what they do their stretching exercises in and what they ride on the mechanical horse in because he wanted them to get maximum exposure to the sun. And that was something that he was vehement about. He would send patients to, quote, electric light baths 
which were sometimes them laying out on tables and spending a certain amount of time on one side, then flipping. But then there were also cabinets, which, you know, depending on the strength of the bulbs. And he'd say it was for everything from diabetes to insomnia to gangrene to syphilis to writer's cramp. Uh Uh-huh. And this is why he dressed in all white, because he thought that it absorbed sun rays. And he was wrong. That's so wrong. That's not how that. Okay. White reflects and black absorbs. But more on electric things. The sinusoidal current treatments. His name was this device. Oh, no. Okay. Used to deliver said currents was, quote, cobbled together from telephone parts and would, quote, administer mild doses of electrical current directly to his patient's skin. That in and of itself doesn't sound so bad. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's some stuff around today that does similar Except, and I quote, the ever-optimistic Kellogg maintained that it could treat lead poisoning, tuberculosis, obesity, and when applied directly to the patient's eyeballs, a (sighs) variety of vision disorders. That's what I was waiting for. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Now, I don't know about y'all, but my mind just immediately went to Carl Tanzler when I read that. Big time. Because oh, remember, I said in that episode, I was like, "Where? Well, how is he correlating a largely respiratory disease? Talking about TB. How is where is electrocuting? Yeah, oh. where is he correlating that with electricity? But then I read this, and so, oh, at least he wasn't alone in his in that nutter butter. Did he aspect. ever spend some time at the sand? Oh, see, see, here we go. Because yeah, all his worldly travels. Uh, yeah. Y'all got to listen to that episode. It's called, um, uh, help. We Should Stop Saying Fluids. <laughs> we Should Stop Saying Fluids, part one. More on baths. Quote, the Battle Creek Sanitarium boasted of offering 46 different kinds of baths. And whatever. Some of them were just foot baths and blah, blah, you blah. You sit in water. That's a bath. Right. And, I, and believe me, <laughs> I'm not going to name all the varieties. The one y'all need to know about was called the Continuous Bath which is what you'd picture in a bathtub like normal. And they'd sometimes put a cover over it. But the thing was, it could last, as John Harvey wrote, quote, for many hours, days, weeks, or months, as the case may require. And what were these beneficial for? Well, for skin issues, mental conditions like delirium, mania, our favorite for the ladies, hysteria, and also chronic diarrhea. Now, which, if you've got the cha-cha-chas... If you've got the cha-cha-chas, you better hope that there's an assistant standing guard to get you out and to the toilet real, real fast. I mean, the man was obsessed with poo. He was obsessed with poo. (laughs) Other mechanical devices, including ones for vibrotherapy, which were vibrating chairs and not like your papa's lazy boy that's all puffed up and nice. These were just hard wooden chairs and they shook the shit out of you like 60 revs per second. And the idea was that it would stimulate the bowels. Like I say, it shook the shit out of you. Sure it did. (laughs) And again, he is obsessed with poo. More on that. There's more. There, believe me. Uh, There were also beating and slapping contraptions, which, quote, gave patients the choice of being pounded or flogged (laughs) in order to stimulate their circulation. There was also (laughs) the... Okay. Okay. I know. Could you imagine saying to your nurse, yes, I'd uh, like to be slapped today. (laughs) Just slapped around. (laughs) There's also the oscillo manipulator, which is the person standing with a wide belt around them that's attached to the machine that also shook you. And but this one was more about helping you lose weight. I feel like many of you would recognize this if you saw it. Oh, this was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this was, was a fad. Shown, yeah, with women. And it was on like, it was always on like the old cartoons. Uh-huh. I promise you guys will know this when you see it. So here's some of the not really bad, but we're getting weird stuff. Of course, being active and getting in routine exercise, not a bad thing. Considering what one puts in their body, not a bad thing. He encouraged people to chew bites of food a solid 40 times before swallowing. And while that's a little excessive, chewing your food, well, is okay advice. Sure. Like I said, he'd also prescribe artificial sunlight treatments. And again, as long as it's not too close and risking sunburn and they're wearing eye protection, which in a photo I saw it looked like they were, 
this can be beneficial for some of these rich folks who weren't outdoors often enough like workers were because it can help bump vitamin D. And the literature, as a matter of fact, it says direct artificial light. But And again, there's lamps and bulbs specifically made for this to use at your like at your desk or whatever. It can yeah, be beneficial. Like a, a thing today, you know, for people with like seasonal affective disorders and things like that. You took the words out of my mouth and it's in the literature. It has been shown to be beneficial for helping seasonal affective disorder, um, particularly in the winter when it's so just kind of bleh outside in terms of cloud cover. And plus, we're just not outside as much in the winter. So you're dead on right. But eh. Here we go. Regarding Not sex. Like this. <laughs> well, regarding sex. And so all that is the kind of okay stuff. Like he's, he's actually hitting close to some marks that we now have the evidence to back up. But this gets rough. Regarding sex and masturbation, he called sex, quote, the sewer drain of the body and masturbation, the silent killer of the night. And this is probably because he himself was very likely for all intents and purposes impotent. He actually bragged that he and his wife, Ella, never consummated their 40-year marriage, and therefore, they had no children. And now, do I know that he couldn't get it up? Can I prove it? I cannot. But, you know, we're in his world, and in his world, you can just say whatever, and it must be true, right? (laughs) But in any event, they ended up fostering roughly 42 orphans from, quote, poorer areas of America, and ended up adopting seven, but... He wasn't exactly doing this out of the goodness of his heart. It was mostly to prove that he could, quote, transform even the most pathetic specimens of humanity into thriving examples of health. So I guess. So you lay out those numbers and I'm like, oh, okay, good for them. And then you continued and I'm like, oh, Uh they were experiments. (laughs) And and I don't know what those seven must have done to make the cut. My, I imagine they were just very malleable and easy to control and to make do all of follow all of his rules and stuff like that. Now, here's the frighteningly bad stuff. Wrote John Harvey, quote, more people need washing out than any other remedy. And what he meant by that were enemas. Per medical historian Howard Markle, there were machines that, quote, were capable of pumping 15 quarts of water per minute into the patient's bowels. Oh, my God. To give you perspective, most medical enemas are like a pint, and they're administered not super duper slow, but also not at the speed of damn light. And, oh, P.S., they also administered yogurt enemas. And he thought that because other primates shit a lot, that humans should also be doing that and that they should be having a poo after each meal. So that's at least three a day. And he recommended four. And it wasn't just the poops. It was also the peeps. Here's another one for you to cringe over. Quote, sometimes he prescribed shoving electricity and water up the urethra, a process to be done with skillful catheterism. That's not. No. 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 That's a hard no. But talking about that's that's out. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. No, it's out. I'm out. I'm gone, ma'am. It's not refundable. That's okay. That is. You keep that money and you spend it on as much yogurt as you want, honey. I'm gone. But talking about taking in and adopting kids, there was one child he took in called George, and reportedly George was quote the son of a prostitute living on the street eating out of garbage cans. But old Georgie didn't take to all the rules and restrictions. And as he got older, he would drink and, you know, stay out late and all that. And it convinced John Harvey that, quote, good living could only do so much. And clearly genetics played a bigger role than I thought. And his experience with this little kid is what got him going on eugenics, which was also popular at this time. And in case you don't know, eugenics, simply put, is the thought that, big air quotes, lesser people shouldn't procreate. And lesser was dependent on who you asked. So, you know, the Nazi route was broadly, I'm speaking, of course, very broadly here, but, you know, the blonde hair, blue eyed European types. And further, it would include people who were mentally and physically disabled point is, it's not just in Nazi Germany. Eugenics was popular in many places at the time. I'm not going to get into the nitty gritties of it here, but you get the idea. And it did slide into John Harvey's whole quest for bodily perfection, that whole thing, as a seemingly good fit. And he founded a thing called the Race Betterment Foundation in 1906. Just a scumbag. That sounds lovely. (laughs) I will say this, that he wasn't like, you know, sterilizing people in the sanitarium or something. There's no evidence of that. However, big however. 
as if that weren't enough. Here's what, in my opinion, was the absolute worst. Back to the sexual stuff and masturbation being this horrible thing. And in addition to saying what I mentioned before, he also thought that masturbation led to, amongst other things, idiocy, spinal derangement, poor digestion, memory loss, warts. <laughs> you probably- <laughs> Where are you putting me. your hands if that's an issue? <laughs> oh my God. That one got me. <laughs> Uterine prolapse, uterine cancer, impaired vision, heart disease, epilepsy, insanity, sterility, and cruel birth defects in the unborn. And some of those, as I'm sure you noticed, are particularly unique to female masturbation. Quote, Kellogg reported that he had seen children as young as two years of age place their hands upon their own genitalia. In these cases, the child, already deficient in morals, was most likely suffering from the sins her parents committed before she was even born. Having excessive sexual relations during pregnancy or being the offspring of a masturbator could warp the values of a fetus in utero. <laughs> Bad shit. So he suggested that parents do things like tie kids' hands behind their backs at night, bandaging their dingle hoppers, and even putting a cage-like device uh, that's attached to this belt thing on them. I mean, metal. The belt's not metal, but the thing is metal. He also advocated circumcision of boys, specifically circumcision without any anesthetic, because, quote, the brief pain attending the operation will have a beneficial effect upon the mind. And girls didn't get out of this one either. He advocated putting carbolic acid on the clitoris or even removing it surgically. Just an absolute monster. Absolute Dude, monster. Just because With you no couldn't proof. get it up, you just got to ruin it for everybody. Uh-huh. That's, that's, why, that's why my gut tells me that he had some sort of sexual dysfunction himself. Because I just... And granted, we don't have any testimony from his wife, but I just... That's my gut, and he's dead now, so I can't be sued for defamation. I will still say, you know, allegedly, allegedly, I feel like he was very busy with all of this stuff, so his wife got lots of alone time, and I think that she she found ways to fill her time on her own. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Just and and this is all in his book titled "Plain Facts for the Old and Young." So this isn't some rumor or whatever. Now that is the end of the horror, and. I, you know, I almost left it out, but I think it's important to know that A, all this shit happened, and B, that regardless of the things he was right about and the elements of health he may have contributed worthwhile things to and, you know, contributed to medicine. Uh, one place said that he was a big advocate for sterile operating rooms, for example. So, okay, that's a good thing. Yeah. Aside, but, you know, to me, uh, beside all the stuff that he might have contributed that was worthwhile, this is absolutely inexcusable. He had zero evidence for any of this. There was no scientific method behind it. So for all his blustering about how smart and how knowledgeable he was, he he maimed children. Mm -hmm. But now let us turn to the extreme diets, some of which you're going to be like, okay, well, not a big deal, but just wait. <laughs> First off, no meat, period. Absolutely none. Sugar and salt were sinful, of course. And once more, calling back to his obsession with naughty bits, he wouldn't allow anything with cinnamon or peppermint or, you know, other flavor because he said, quote, spices, cinnamon, cloves, peppermint, and all strong essences powerfully excite the genital organs and lead to the same results. <laughs> See, again, he's so fixated on it. He's so fixated on your butt. And you groin and your anything in that area of your body, he is fixated upon, which I'm telling you is very, it's just, it's very telling to me again, allegedly on one menu, I saw included creamed cauliflower, celery, yogurt, cheese, stewed raisins, bananas, radishes, pineapple sauce, and kaffir tea, which I looked up. And essentially this means leaves from a kaffir lime boiled in water. That's your tea. <laughs> It's no wonder that these people were shitting all the time. All the mm -hmm. time. <laughs> and, and that, and, and then here's the other issue with this. These people are not only exerting themselves more than their bodies were accustomed to with the exercise. They were also being drained of essential vitamins and minerals via like these steam baths and the constant enemas. So they're not replacing any of those lost need needful things. They're not replacing them with this scant diet. So I'm picturing like a bunch of zombies pretty much walking around. I mean, a lot of them you see are in wheelchairs all bundled up. I'm putting a ton of pictures and show notes, but they're in these like wheelchair lounger type things bundled up because I'm sure he was edging some of them towards anorexia. And yeah. 
uh, anyway, so the documentary mentioned that some people would sneak off to a local restaurant to actually, you know, get some sustenance and that John Harvey would go by on his bicycle and he'd stop at the window and shake his head at them. And he would call them the sinners club. <laughs> Count me in. <laughs> I'm a card carrying member, sir. Card carrying. So he realizes that he has to do something with the diets and that they needed to start inventing food, just like he was inventing machines and exercises and all that. So he creates the Sanitarium Health Food Company in 1877, and the kitchen workers were tasked with creating not just new recipes, but new food products out of stuff he considered not sinful. And the names were trying to sound all scientific, and a few of them as examples to give you were protose, nuttose, lax vegetal, and bromose, all of which sound disgusting, and most of which were, per testimonials, disgusting. Vitamita vegemin. <laughs> Vitamita vegemin, baby. And here's an interesting, well, except no alcohol. So uh, here's an interesting tidbit. On the menu was a thick peanut spread. And turns out John Harvey actually had the very first patent on peanut butter as of 1897. But he didn't enforce it. Whoopsie doodles on that one. They made a coffee substitute out of molasses and toasted grains and made a fake meat based out of nuts. <laughs> There was also dry-ass granola and shredded wheat, the latter of which the patients really hated and said that it was like eating, quote, bales of hay. Oh, I can imagine it. I, oh, I could like feel it in my teeth. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're dead on, too. They're dead. Have, has anybody ever seen just like those bricks? They still sell them. Like they do. Big, yeah. big palm of your hand size brick of shredded wheat. Oh, my God. Oh, so they had to work on better stuff, clearly. And one of the people working on this was the person who oversaw the kitchen, amongst many other things. And we need to pause for a second and talk about him. Hello, listeners. I'm Jaden McKell, and welcome to Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, true crime, and riddles from the ancient world are all things to expect when you tune in to Straight Up Enigmas. Like the time we discussed the mysterious death of Alyssa Lamb, or share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis and shadow people. In one of our most recent episodes, I told the story of Debbie Kent, the sister of my dad's best friend from high school, who was abducted and murdered by serial killer Ted Bundy. Join us every Tuesday and dive into the world's weirdest riddles, unsolved cold cases, and ghostly encounters. You can find our Straight Up Strange episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Will Keith Kellogg was born April 7th, 1860 in Battle Creek, Michigan. And if his name didn't tip you off, let me clarify that, yes, he is one of the younger brothers of John Harvey. He was in school till about the sixth grade until, like his brother, he goes to work at their father's broom factory. But unlike his brother, he really dug it and he was into the business of it. And by the time he was 14, he was working in sales. So he's a smart little sucker, even though one of my sources, the way they described it was that he was kind of this shy kid and he kept his head down and did his thing. And it was like, nobody really put much stock into him. He came across as just ordinary, just an ordinary kid. I assure y'all, Will Keith is anything but, and we'll get there. Now, as far as how these two brothers got along, their relationship was quote, the traditional one of an older brother dominating a younger brother. Is, is that tradition? You've got two boys. Is that tradition? <laughs> Oh, no, no. My youngest one will kick the oldest one's ass. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, when they were growing up, John Harvey gave him whippings from time to time and also used his backside as a foot warmer at night during Michigan's cold winters. <laughs> what? what the fuck, man? <laughs> How did that go? Like, hey, baby bro, get over here and sit on my feet. <laughs> I don't know. All right, fast forward. By the 1880s, the sanitarium was so big and so popular that John Harvey needed help running the joint. At its peak in a given year, we're talking like 1,600 plus people staying there. 
So he wanted this person to be someone he could trust because part of it involved acting as director in his stead when he was out doing his speaking engagements and all that shit. And he thinks, who can I get that I can trust? Certainly. But who will also do everything I say and not complain? Aha. Ding, ding, ding. The little brother that I used to beat the shit out of. (laughs) How about that foot warmer? He contacts Will Keith. And I, by the way, I got to stop calling him that. I know it's his given name, but it, it just don't flow like John Harvey. So I'm going to just call him Will from here on out. Anyway, when Big Bro summons him back, Will is 20 years old and had at the time been in Texas where he'd been a consultant for a failing broom factory and had gotten it back on the road to being successful again. So again, this dude's business game is tight. If you can revive a broom factory, yeah, I'd say so. He's he's good. I mean, another source talked about how he had tried to maybe start his own little thing and it didn't really take off. But as a consultant and a salesperson, he's on it, it seems. Now, here's a little of what a week at The Sand was like for Will. Quote, Will worked 80 and sometimes 120 hours per week packing books, mailing invoices, serving patients and balancing ledgers. Oh, and by packing books, by the way, he means John Harvey's books that he had written and were selling like crazy. Okay. He had dozens of duties. He says, I was always notified when insane patients succeeded in getting away, Will lamented, because he was the one who had to spend the night tracking them down. I was so overloaded with work, he later wrote, that I am conscious that very little, if any of it, was performed satisfactorily. I mean, bless it. This poor guy. Yeah. He just, he was doing so much and he felt like, He still wasn't doing enough. Also amongst his duties was following John Harvey around and taking notes, even when he was riding on his bicycle. So Will would have to jog along beside him. And he even had to keep taking notes when John Harvey went to take one of his three and four times a day dumps. This guy is an asshole. (laughs) Yep. In addition, Will had to call his own brother, Dr. Kellogg, and shine his shoes and give him shaves. But for me, toilet secretary has got to be the bottom rung. Oh, my God. He is taking advantage of that relationship. 100%. 100%. John Harvey paid Will about $9 a week. Later, after much convincing, he bumped it to $3 a day and that he, quote, grudgingly gave Will an office. And, you know, both salaries are garbage, but Will wasn't the only one getting the shaft because as the documentary points out, he gave the nurses room and board, but no pay, saying that their pay was the honor of working for him and helping improve the health of the guests. Sure. And he was like, I mean, hey, I don't take a salary, but the thing is, he's making bank off of his books and speaking engagements. Now, if you're still looking for a word to describe this guy, might I submit arrogant asshat, but... His biography puts it a little differently. From his biographer, Richard Swartz, quote, It was said that you either loved or hated Dr. Kellogg. There was no middle ground. He once said that it was impossible for him to take second string. He had to play first chair in the orchestra. He had to be the one to dominate. And this made him obnoxious to many people. I mean, yeah. But back to the kitchen and trying to invent something that fell within the strict dietary guidelines that patients would actually eat because for the most part, they just wouldn't eat it. They would, you know, sneak to that restaurant that was nearby or they just fill up on the stuff. Like talking about that menu, all I would be eating would be like the pineapple. And there was a couple things that I thought, okay, I could stomach that. Yeah. So sometime around 1877, they had hit upon this recipe that involved twice baking a mix of flour, oats, and cornmeal, and they made it into biscuits. Unfortunately, a patient broke their tooth on one. Back to the drawing board. They then start pounding them out into smaller pieces like tiny cookies and baking them at a high temperature. And John Harvey made up a word for this, dextronixation, which means nothing. And I can't see how it would make this stuff any less tooth busting, but whatever. What do I know? So Will and the kitchen staff keep dicking around with ideas in the same vein, something lighter being the goal, I presume. And one night, I have to guess out of exhaustion, Will leaves some dough out on the counter overnight. And he hadn't put it through the roller to make it a flat sheet from which they then cut out their little cookies. It was just in the lump. And the next morning, he does run it through the roller and it doesn't go into a flat sheet. It starts crumbling. What had happened was, quote, 
the moisture had spread evenly to each individual wheat berry and the dough had broken into flakes instead of binding. Will goes and shows it to John Harvey, who's like, well, crunch them up more. But in a tiny little bit of pushback, Will serves them as whole flakes and the patients love it. They absolutely love it. So he starts dicking around with variations on the dough, trying it with oat and barley and whatever. But the corn-based ones were the hit. Then patients who went back home were like, can we order this from you so that we can keep having it? And so Will starts this little mail order service to supply them. Only the seventh dayers and former patients knew about this. But check it. In the first year of sales, he sold 113,400 pounds. What? Unbelievable. Pounds, y'all, of little wispy flakes. So can you just fathom visually how much that is? I, I just, so ever the businessman, he's begging John Harvey to take this wider. And John Harvey's like, nah, let us be content, which easy for him to say, because he's over there rolling in cash, Scrooge McDuck in his little white suit, <laughs> stupid <laughs> mustache and his goddamn cockatoo. At this point, by the way, Will is about 40 years old. He'd been putting up with all of this shit from John Harvey at the sand for 20 years. Oh my God. Unbelievable. And according to stuff he wrote in his diary, his confidence is just beat to hell, but he knows that this is a great idea and his gut is telling him it could be a real winner. And then a very special guest arrives at Battle Creek Sanatorium. In 1891, there's this entrepreneur from Texas who shows up and his name is Charles Post and he's come because of indigestion. Now at the time, Post businesses would pretty much be failures. And hello, I understand the indigestion. And he'd come off and on over the course of several years to get his tummy resituated. And he, like Will, saw all the potential in mass marketing this food. One of the workers tells John Harvey that Post was skulking about the lab and kitchen areas, checking out what they were doing. Now, another source said that actually... Because Post was too poor to afford the fees, he was working off his stay in the kitchen. So that's how he got to see all of their methods. But in any event, it doesn't matter because regardless, John Harvey says, quote, let him see everything we are doing. I shall be delighted if he makes a cereal and wish him success. Just the arrogance. Yeah, I'm not sure I believe that. I mean, the, okay. the yeah. arrogance on this dude, like he, well, now here's what it was. He thought that nobody could do what he was doing and that, and that maybe just maybe they could do it better. That that's just how arrogant he was. Now, fast forward several years, post starts selling a little thing called great nuts, which is a twice baked cereal, which is absolutely vile. And by 1901 post is officially a millionaire. John Harvey publicly denounces him and calls him an imitator. So Post one time goes back to the sanitarium and he's dressed in all black because, you know, John Harvey dresses in all white. And oh, and I don't know if I mentioned this also, but the uniforms that they had all the patients and all the staff wearing, those are also white. And anyway, Post blows cigar smoke into John Harvey's face and he ignores Post. And as he turns and walks away, Post under his breath says, dog. And John Harvey turns back and goes, quote, yes. And you know what dogs do to post, don't you? Nice. <laughs> Look, I hate the bastard, but nice. <laughs> That's a good one. All during this, because remember, they've invented cereal. Cereal has never really existed before this point. And like we've talked about, the market was primed and ready for it because people were looking for quick, easy, filling breakfast foods as a substitute for all this grease and fat and blah, 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 blah. So during all this, more and more people are coming out of the woodwork, starting up these little companies with breakfast cereals, and Battle Creek turns into the cereal capital of the world, and Will is getting more and more fired up, but John Harvey still refusing. When he's 42 years old, Will has decided he is just going to do it himself. He's also been thinking about how he could differentiate the cornflakes before he takes it wide, and besides that, they taste kind of gross. So he's messing around with different things to make them taste better and hold that thought. But then in 1902, the sanitarium mostly burns down. Will is just an awesome person. He tells John Harvey that he's committing to stick around until the sanitarium gets rebuilt. But after that, he's out of there. 
1906, when John Harvey's overseas, we'll add some malt flavoring, which is basically sugar, to some of the batches of cornflakes. And as we all know that sugar is the devil's mark, <laughs> and he shouldn't have done that, but he did it anyway. And he also had saved up enough money to build a small processing plant to keep filling this ever-growing amount of mail orders. Now, John Harvey finds out, and he's just absolutely livid, came back early from the trip, and he just lit into Will. And Will's like, I'm going to take my invention and catch you on the flip side, you abusive, tyrannical, abscess taint of a human. No. Is that in the book? No, he didn't say that. He didn't oh, say bummer. that. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. He, uh, he didn't say that. But I can wish. I can wish. <laughs> Will is now 46 years old when he founds the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company with the assistance of $200,000 startup capital that was donated by former sanitarium patients. I mean, what? Uh-huh. That's how good it was. And that's how much they liked Will. I just, I love that. So when I read that, I knew of this story, y'all. But I didn't know this type of stuff. And that just, I mean, it actually brought tears to my eyes because this, this man was abused. He was abused. He was abused ever since he was a kid by his brother. And as you can, as we've talked about, when he was away from his brother, he thrived. And mm -hmm. when, you know, he gets, it's just this constant uphill battle whenever he's around them. That, so that actually brought tears to my eyes when I read it. So initially to keep John Harvey at bay and keep him from kicking up dust, Will lets him be the majority stakeholder in the company. But over time, Will starts buying him out share by share. And John Harvey's got so many other, I, I should have written it down. John Harvey was constantly patenting things and starting little businesses. And he's constantly licensing stuff. And so, I mean, that's why he needed Will in the first place, because he, he had so much on his plate. I would be willing to bet that until it was too late, he probably didn't notice that he was being bought out. I've got yeah. to wonder, you know? So one thing that Will invested in right off the bat was marketing and advertising, even though a lot of grocers didn't even carry him yet. So he knew that he basically had to convince customers to demand it. So what he did was brilliant. He gave out coupons for free samples, and he suggested that housewives ask their grocers for it so that they could redeem the coupons. So in other words, the grocers had to contact him and be like, we need, I don't know, a truck full. And of course, not all the coupons would get redeemed at that store. So then that store would have stock and they'd have to put it on the shelves. And then that would expose more people to it. Just it was very, very smart. Very smart. Yeah, definitely. He also put in the ads how, yeah, they were healthy, but the cornflakes also tasted great. So they're not just a health food. Because again, he wanted to appeal to people who didn't give a shit about the whole health movement. Maybe they still were doing their eggs and bacon and crap. But he was like, and why don't you kick some of this on the side? You know, it tastes all nice and sugary. Come on, you fuckers. You know, <laughs> come to the devil. Come meet Stan. <laughs> I love it. Then he starts running in his ads what became his trademark sentence. The original has this signature, W.K. Kellogg. And there it is. It, and I'll put a picture of it in show notes. His signature was on it. And they're not on boxes anymore, but I think you'll still see it if Kellogg's the company does special edition, something or other. You'll see it on there. And it wasn't out of vanity or anything. It was him trying to separate himself, not just from the knockoffs, but from the little mail order business that John Harvey was still letting run out of the sanitarium. By the end of that first year of 1906, it was off and running. He'd sold roughly 180,000 cases to stores and more were lined up wanting to stock it. In 1907, another gimmick was that Wednesday, June the 7th was wink day. And the ad said for housewives to wink at the grocer and see what happens. And what happened was they get a free sample of cornflakes. And then that bumped sales from two truckloads a month going out to over 30. So he was very... <laughs> Gosh. He was very, I mean, it, it's a good cereal, guys. So he was very aggressive with the marketing. And I have to tell you about some of my favorites. And I will put these in show notes. One of my sources said it best that, quote, some of them were really quite threatening. <laughs> and, it, and it's true. The ones I love. Okay. One is of this beautiful lady looking cranky. And she's saying, I know what I want. And I want what I asked for. Toasted cornflakes. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> then another one says stop feeling like a chunk of punk 
chocobongo. I have no idea what that means. I took it to mean constipation. That's all I could come up with. And another says, I'll learn you. And that one's image is of this woman absolutely beating the crap out of this grocery clerk. And the caption says, didn't I tell you never to send me anything but Kellogg's when I order toasted cornflakes? <laughs> I mean, she's got him like pinned to a counter. Like, like she grabbed the back of his neck and went, woof. Oh, I feel like Will is maybe letting out some of his. See, this is therapeutic for him. <laughs> this is some pin up shit right here. Bottom line, by 1910, Will's company was pulling in a million a year in profits. And that's in, that's in profits. Notice I'm saying that. They were pulling in more. I'm just saying by the time, you know, you paid people and covered expenses, they were still... He paid people? He paid his workers? Oh How my about gosh. that? Oh my gosh, he paid his workers. Yeah, yeah. He even... Uh, I don't think I put it in the notes, but I'll jump ahead and spoil a little bit. But he was a, a very kind man. During the Depression, he split the work days to like six he he created six hour shifts so that he could hire more people during the depression oh and would overlap shifts and stuff like that so that he could yeah i know good good guy will so they're pulling in a million in profits and the name had been changed to the kellogg toasted cornflakes company and john harvey's stance was that will was capitalizing on his name and reputation because you know that like that that's why it's successful not because it's a solid product and that will was a good businessman of course not john harvey says he's the real kellogg and that he was the one who made the name famous to which will said quote for 22 and one half years i had absolutely lost all of my individuality in you i tried to see things through your eyes and do things as you would do them you know in your heart whether or not I am a rascal. So John Harvey starts putting a Kellogg label on his products. And in 1910, Will sues him for infringement. Go yeah. Will. Yeah. And the courts side with Will. Then in 1916, when Will was starting to add new cereals to the lineup, John Harvey sues him trying to keep him from selling any of the brand products that were developed at the sanitarium. But the courts, and this one went all the way to the Supreme Court of Michigan, the state Supreme Court. And the courts again decide for Will, plus attorney's fees. Do we think that John Harvey maybe let up and stopped, you know, being a... No. No, he, he was, didn't. He was still a dick. He yeah. was still a dick. At some point, and this is again, small town. So the chances of people running into each other that worked for one brother or the other was, I mean, constantly, constantly. So at one point, Will had been dating a doctor who worked at the sanitarium. And when John Harvey found out, he threatened to fire her. And it was like, you know what? Go for it. You know, Will was like, why don't you? Because I'm going to marry her. And now she's a millionaire. So boom. <laughs> she ain't got to work for you. If she wants to, knock it out. But she don't have to. Yeah. Fast forward to the late 1920s. And John Harvey had started this huge expansion to the sanitarium. But then the Great Depression was hitting and people weren't coming to stay like they used to. But meanwhile, Will had been investing and kept being successful. Then in the 1930s, the sanitarium had to be shut down and John Harvey opens a small health clinic in Florida. So he basically tanked. And I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention that with regard to Post, Will was like, knock, knock, motherfucker. Guess who's at your door? Because he outsold him, too. It was great. He just... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like this, the underdog whooping everybody's ass is yeah. to me like the he best the, story. He was, you know, the poop secretary. I mean, God, God <laughs> almighty. He's the, uh, he's the bell figure of the story. <laughs> but yeah, so he outsells post too. And rightly so, because Kellogg's cereals are better than post and don't at me. I'm right. And you know, I'm right. Fast forward again to 1943. John Harvey, since he's at that age where knocking on heaven's door is coming around the corner, speaking of knocking on doors, he starts thinking about not being a dick. And he writes Will a seven-page letter, part of which said, quote, I earnestly desire to make amends for any wrong or injustice of any sort that I have done to you. Which, let me stop right there. <laughs> Everybody who's listening, that's very sweet. It's also not an apology. <laughs> it is not, no. When you apologize, you say, I'm so sorry for point one, point two, point three, point four, as long as it needs to go on. You list the things that you did that were wrong. Okay, let's go back. 
I'm sure that you were right as regards to the food business. Your better balanced judgment has doubtless saved you from a vast number of mistakes of the sort I have made and allowed you to achieve magnificent successes for which generations to come will owe you gratitude. Now, wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. All I right. know. The rest when of it. I swing there. Yeah. He started off a little shaky, but pretty much pulled it out in the end. And again, seven pages. That was just a couple sentences. Seven pages he wrote to his brother. So he signs it, gives it to his secretary for her to send off. But, big but, the secretary read it and felt that it reflected poorly on John Harvey. And so she doesn't mail it. <gasps> Bitch. Mm -hmm. Not your decision to make. Your boss said, I want you to mail this. Your job is to then put a stamp on it and address it and mail it. Uh, now, wouldn't you know it, John Harvey dies later that year. Never heard back from Will. Of course he didn't. Will never got the letter. So he dies thinking that his brother didn't forgive him. And five years later, when Will was now 88 years old and was blind and his health was diminishing by the day, somehow they get the letter to him. And it was kind of bittersweet because, you know, they never got the chance to officially reconcile. And I hope that that secretary felt like a real asshat. But at least Will got to know that his brother felt differently after all that time. And Will died several years later in 1951 when he was 91 years old. And some places say that he was just told about the letter on his deathbed. But regardless, the point is he, he knew before he passed away. Mm -hmm. Here's some cool factoids. Kellogg was the first to put nutrition labels on food. They were the first to do the inbox toys and prizes for kids. The rooster on the box is because Will supposedly liked how the Welsh word for rooster, which is Kaliog, and I'm butchering that, but it sounds similar to Kellogg. So that's why the rooster. And finally, I hope you now know that the meme slash urban legend that floats around about cornflakes being invented expressly for the purpose of preventing masturbation is false. Don't believe everything you read in memes. <laughs> no, it, it was just going to specify that it was actually just a dude with a limp dick. <laughs> it wasn't the cornflakes. <laughs> right. Mm -mm. So I'm going to close with telling you one more awesome thing about Will Keith Kellogg, which is that when he was around 70, he really got to thinking about giving back because he had become one of the wealthiest people in the country. So in the 1930s, he established the W.K. Kellogg Foundation to manage his philanthropic efforts. And throughout that decade, he ends up putting about $66 million into it, which was the majority of his amassed wealth. He funded a bird sanctuary. He was instrumental in founding, through the donation of land that has once been his ranch, the renowned Caltech. Some of his Battle Creek property went to Michigan State, and it is now the site of the Kellogg Biological Station, which is this large off-campus facility that's an experimental farm. He funded summer camps for children from low-income families. He established the Ann Kellogg School, named for his mother, which was one of the first elementary schools where children with disabilities learned right alongside children without. And there's more. Believe me, there's more. But I'll stop there. Will often said, quote, dollars do not create character. And in that vein, he initially wasn't going to leave his children anything because he wanted them to make their own way. But an aide persuaded him that he shouldn't do that. He should leave them a little something. And so while the kids and grandkids all got nice trust funds, the bulk of his fortune upon death went back into the foundation. And to finish off, I really think that this quote from one of my sources sums this whole thing up beautifully. Yet Will was never arrogant or boastful of his turned around life. John Harvey was his perfect role model of how not to behave. So that's your story of the invention of cornflakes and how it somehow managed to claw its way out of a cesspool of woo to reach us. <laughs> with sugary goodness. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I had some this morning, matter of fact, with uh, nanners and a little bit of sugar. It's the only way to go. Yeah. Nice. Now, I was, you know, I was a little bit familiar with some of that story, but certainly not all those details. A lot of that was was surprising. It was interesting. Yeah, I had no idea how. And and y'all, there was so much more. If you think God would have win back, uh, uh listen, there was so much more. Good for Will Keith. <laughs> it's still terrible to try and have that roll off your tongue, but yeah, good for him. We are not sponsored. <laughs> oh yeah, we are not sponsored by cornflakes. By the way. God, please, Kellogg's, if you want to sponsor us, legit, I love all your shit. I love it all. I can't support great nuts. They're insupportable. 
They're horrible little BBs. <laughs> they're horrible. Oh, they're insupportable. I'll say this to the listeners. There is a chance that you are hearing my voice after I've edited out about 15 minutes conservatively of talk about which cereals we love most. <laughs> or I may have left it in. Hell, I don't know. But that's the point we're at now. So that's it. Next time we will bring you part two of favorite products that were you didn't know came from a background of nut bar <laughs> beliefs. And um Oh, yes. Your, your special medicines. <laughs> and, you know, while we're thankful for modern medicine, yeah, products that started as kind of treatments and cures. And anyway, that's what we're thankful for. And to all of our U.S. listeners, happy Thanksgiving. Hope that we've either served as a diversion or maybe you're listening to us on your way to do some Black Friday shopping or you're about to pass out in a food coma or, you know. Did you listen with your family? <gasps> Wouldn't that be special? Special bonding time, you guys. You can all learn something. Should I throw on some political opinions to make it feel <laughs> like it's a family gathering right now? Even if you didn't. No, I'm not going to do that to you. Stay tuned. You're going to hear, like we said earlier, you're going to hear a promo for a podcast, another podcast, and you're going to hear immediately after we say goodbye, you're going to hear our outro, which tells you all of our socials and where you can find us to communicate with us and where you can email us all that jazz. And I think that's it. I think we're done. Are we done, Tiff? That's it. We're done. Get ready for part two. I think that's it. Get ready for part two. That's it. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUPodcast and on Instagram at youtotallymadethatup. Feel free to contact us on those platforms, and you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.